Hello, and welcome to another episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. I'm the titular Sean. And I'm the very titular Carrie. And this is the show that takes you inside the unbelievable, the unexplainable, the macabre, and the bizarre, and tries to find an answer. Hello, Caroline. Hello, Sean. This is part two of our series, our short, our two-part series on the Fermi Paradox, uh, which, if you didn't listen to our last episode, A, you know, probably go back. It'll make this make a lot more sense. But B, uh, the Fermi Paradox is the apparent contradiction between the high probability of advanced alien life being out there somewhere in our galaxy and the total lack of evidence for advanced alien life that we have anywhere here on Earth. So they say. So they say. And that's part of our episode this week, certainly, Carrie. Uh, Last week, we talked about Enrico Fermi, the physicist who the paradox is named for and the lunchtime conversation with his friends at Los Alamos uh, Laboratory that kind of spawned this whole concept. Mm -hmm. We also covered the first two answers to the Fermi Paradox, the first one being that intelligent alien life isn't as common as we would assume out there, in fact that it's rare or non-existent in the galaxy, in the universe. And the second being that intelligent alien life might be common, but it never gets far enough to reach um, interplanetary interplanetary exploration, colonization, that kind of thing, um, because extinction events or uh, <laughs> your own your own bitter hubris <laughs> undo you before you can uh, get to that technological stage. Mm-hmm. Now, to me, Caroline, it's funny. I talked to my sister earlier on the phone today, earlier today on the phone about our previous episode, and she said. Um, that's always been her answer to the Fermi paradox is that we probably will just kill ourselves eventually. And that's what all civilizations do around the time of development where we are. And your sister's a doctor, right? My sister's a biomedical engineer. <laughs> that's uh, a hope for humanity there. That doesn't make her a physicist, an astrophysicist. It makes her super smart. She is one of the smartest people I know. <laughs> to me, though periodic self-inflicted apocalypses are just a little it's a little pessimistic as a theory because it rests on every species ever everyone who reaches almost spaceflight blows themselves up with nukes or destroys their planet before they get there every time well i mean periodic self-inflicted apocalypses is what i'd call my teenage years so who knows it could be something that happens to everyone just one of those phases. Yeah. Except this is a phase where you kill yourself. Well. Not the teen one. No, the, the, Earth the one. whole world one. But let's move on from those grim prospects, Carrie. All of our answers for the Fermi Paradox this week rest on the assumption that there is, somewhere out there, advanced extraterrestrial civilizations. And maybe lots of them. Okay. As you recall, that's what um, people like Frank Drake and Carl Sagan uh, argue, as we'll get to a little later in today's episode. As we'll cover later in this episode, Stephen Hawking uh, is kind of of that same belief. The universe is so big, there has to be other life out there, not only as advanced as us, but far more advanced, one would think. One would hope. So where are they, Carrie? Well... Our next answer for the Fermi Paradox suggests that maybe advanced extraterrestrial civilizations are out there, but they're not coming, and they never will. Hmm. That could be because, um, let's see, well, what if colonization of space is impossible? 
Space as in other planets? Yeah, uh, other star systems. Because our current understanding of physics um, depends on Albert Einstein's general relativity. Mm -hmm. And under general relativity, it seems to be theoretically impossible for anything to move faster than the speed of light. Right. So this is going by the theory that that's correct. It is a set thing in the universe. No one's ever figured it out, even using, I don't know, like black holes, wormholes, things like that. And it's just something that can't be done. Right. And I think wormholes are highly theoretical. The idea that you would like go into one, one place and come out another place. The important thing to note here, of course, is that we don't actually know very much. Our understanding of physics the most the um, most brilliant physicist in the world will tell you that our understanding of physics is very limited still. Yeah, it, which is kind of frightening. Yeah, we're worlds away from... Dark matter and all that. We're worlds away from the uh, apple falling on Isaac Newton's head, but we still... We don't really understand what makes the universe work. Yeah, um, what grew that apple? And so it's possible... Well, a tree. <sighs> and so it's possible that... Metaphorically, Sean... It's possible that um, if our understanding of physics is not correct, or if there's some way to get around that general relativity thing, um, maybe you could accelerate objects faster than that. But let's just say for the sake of argument that the fastest anything can move is the speed of light. Okay. Okay. Proxima Centauri is the closest star to Earth. And it's is that the North Star? No, that's Sirius. And that's the brightest for... Uh, other reasons or one of the brightest hmm. um i don't understand them which is why i'm not enumerating <laughs> them here proxima centauri is 4.26 light years from earth and you're saying this is the closest one that's not the sun yes yeah yeah the sun is a <laughs> lot closer than that okay so that is the closest star to us and what is a light year how long is that in people years well it's not a measure of time it's a measure of distance a light year Let's see what it is in miles. It almost doesn't matter because it's such a huge. It is uh, 5.879 to the 12th power. Okay. So I think that means 12, 12 zeros you slap on there. That's how many miles a light year is. Um, what a light year is, is the distance that light travels in one year. Mm -hmm. So that's how far you would get in a year at the speed of light. So 4.26 light years away, that means if we can't break that barrier, the closest star to our star system is more than eight years round trip away. Mm -hmm. And that's if we could get to that speed. Right. To put this distance another way, if the sun, our sun, the one that keeps us warm, was one meter away... Alpha Centauri, which is in the same star system as Proxima Centauri, mm -hmm. um, it's 4.3 light years away. That would be 276 kilometers from us. It's about 172 miles, which is like the distance from Manhattan to Providence, Rhode Island. Right. And the sun is like a meter away from us. Uh, okay. Okay. So the distances we're dealing <laughs> it's with. It's just so big that I can't even comprehend it. Now, how big is a galaxy? How big is a galaxy? Well, the galactic center is about 26,670 light years from Earth. This is our galactic center, the Milky Way. The center of our galaxy. And keep in mind that there are billions of galaxies. Yeah. 
Okay. So twenty. Uh, so it would take light twenty six thousand years, plus or minus six hundred seventy or so, uh, to get from the center of the galaxy to here. Human civilization, generously speaking, depending on how you define civilization, human civilization might be about eleven thousand years old. Mm-hmm. And so that means if a conquering army was launched during the Neolithic Revolution to come to Earth and take us over, they're still fifteen thousand years away now. Wow. Assuming they're moving at the speed of light. (laughs) Well, maybe they are heading over. They're just doing it very, very slowly. So this is a concept that I first kind of came across in our friend Isaac Arthur. We mentioned him last week. Mm -hmm. Uh, Futurist you can find on YouTube and watch his very trippy, heady... Um, futurism science fiction videos. Not science fiction. He's and we say you- it's trippy because it's so mind-blowing, the stuff that he gets across, the concepts and the math and all that. Uh, you'll understand it in a way that you might not have before, and even then it's barely in your grasp unless, I guess, you're a genius, which he is, and we are not. Arthur points out that if FTL, faster than light travel, is not possible, it might not even be worth it even if it were possible, to administer a galactic space empire. What about GTL? I don't know what that is. Jim Tan Laundry? Of course. <laughs> From Jersey Shore. And we know we know the aliens always live by GTL. Got to. That's why they're so pumped. <laughs> Swole. It is possible. So, again, with, with those kinds of distances, let's say a, a galactic center empire was um administrating things out here on the edges of the colonies and earth was one of their colonies it takes fifteen thousand years sorry twenty six thousand years to send a message to your furthest out colonies yeah i guess so it's kind of like sending a text to your grandparents because don't forget we would also assume communication is essentially light right the fastest you can expect a message to move is also uh light speed sure and so, again... <laughs> that could completely not be the case. I'm just going to agree with you. Again, with our current understanding of physics. That's how fast light moves. That's how fast a message travels. How can you administer a space empire if it takes thousands of years for messages to get anywhere? I don't know, Sean. I think about this a lot. Now, it is possible that rather than expanding across the galaxy or the universe, species might migrate from world to world or establish a few colonies in nearby systems to protect themselves from extinction. Kind of, you know, well, let's not put all our eggs in one basket. Maybe Earth could get over to Proxima Centauri in a couple thousand years, establish a colony, and then if an asteroid wipes this place out, there's still humans out there. Mm -hmm. But it's unlikely, according to uh, uh, some astrophysicists, that anyone would be able to expand very far at any one time without kind of these civilizations losing contact, or these settlements losing contact over the vast distance of space. Sure. I mean, they're still a thousand years away. How are you going to say, hey, we need food or something like that? So instead, It's going to be irrelevant by the time you get it. <laughs> so instead, as your population increases and your um, energy needs increase, as your civilization grows and becomes more advanced, maybe instead you colonize your own star system. Right. Mm-hmm. And now we're back to the Dyson Sphere got to uh for those of you who missed again just go back and listen to last week but a dyson sphere uh was it's a concept come up come up with by this uh physicist freeman dyson not a vacuum 
not a vacuum, not the inventor of the vacuum, quite an interesting thinker and physicist and uh, futurist, sorry, who died last year. Dyson conceived of a Dyson sphere that could provide for kind of an end state civilization's um, energy needs, where over time you would construct a series of bands or belts around the sun, acting as kind of a giant solar farm and harvesting all the energy that your growing civilization needs. It's suggested that people could live on these rings as well, a little further out from the sun and uh, uh, climate controlled. This would be as as your sun... It would have to be very climate controlled. This would be as your sun cools millions of years into the future. Mm -hmm. Um, You would eventually end up with ring structures around the sun where it's still warm, and um, that's where your populations would live. Or we could colonize the the gas giants in our uh, solar system, right, by harvesting the materials uh, uh, there to, to build some kind of superstructures, moons orbiting those. Um, the point is, if you heavily construct it inside your own star system, maybe nobody would notice it from a couple of light years away. And aliens could be doing this all over the place, and we just don't see it, because how could we? Could be. This is related to another idea that I find very interesting. And this is Isaac Arthury as well. He's got, he's, I've seen a video of his on this. You mean like scientific? Yes. And that, that's our no, term I, for. No, I just always think of Isaac Arthur when I'm thinking of like end state humanity mm. stuff. Humanity at the end of the universe kind mm-hmm. of kind of things, which is a great series of videos he has. So it's been suggested that before developing the technology and the wherewithal to travel and colonize the galaxy, we've just established that would be really hard. Yeah. And in fact, even humanity's own very limited space flight so far has come at absurd, tremendous cost. It costs so much money to get us to the moon. And maybe lives, if you uh, look at The Lost Cosmonauts, episode 34. That's right. Even in very near to our Earth, even in low Earth orbit, space is uh, terrifying and not where we're supposed to be. And building crafts or environments that can support human life in space, let alone travel from one star to another, is incredibly um, costly and difficult and scary. It might be easier to just invent the Matrix, and that has been seriously suggested as an answer to the Fermi paradox. Like uploading consciousness to well, it- the web? It has certainly been suggested that consciousness upload might be a more feasible technology than spaceflight. So that... <laughs> it seems crazy, but... And if it is, that would mean... If it's cheaper to get there, that means any civilization who could achieve spaceflight might achieve consciousness upload first. And then if you're all living in a computer and surfing the internet happily for the rest of your days... Um, who's exploring space? Nobody. So maybe, maybe that's it, Carrie. Maybe the aliens are all out there just surfing the internet at home. You don't even need the consciousness upload full matrix thing to have this necessarily if just entertainment technologies and virtual reality and stuff improve to the point where people don't really have any need to look out into the universe anymore. If you can provide for your own biological needs on Earth and entertain yourselves endlessly... Maybe that's where space programs end. Yeah, maybe the aliens have, like, alien YouTube, and they just look at alien cat videos all the time, and they give up on space flight. Absolutely. And looking way into the future, Isaac Arthur, our friend, has (laughs) even hypothesized 
a Dyson sphere around a dying star that is basically just a big computer with the entire race's consciousnesses uploaded into it. Into the sphere? Into the Dyson sphere, which is a bunch of computers rotating the uh, sun. Uh Uh-huh. And those people will just live in perceived forever heaven. Um, But what if something hits the sphere? Like an asteroid? Or what if the star explodes? Or whatever. Well, eventually the star will die. And that'll be the end of that uh, civilization. But they'll also... It's possible you could extend your own... If you're in a digital form, you could make time subjectively whatever you want to, right? If you say so. I don't know. Maybe. (laughs) Is this like when I speed up or slow down The Sims? Exactly like that. And so they're just living forever. And the last heartbeat of the universe... Orbiting a dying star. Okay. It was your birthday yesterday, wasn't it? <laughs> and this is all I want. <laughs> to I make wanna, me sad. I want to be in the Matrix orbiting a dying star. I don't really. This is pretty good, what we got now. The concept, well, it, unless we are in the Matrix. Right, and of course that has been suggested too. <laughs> sure has, by the matrix right well and many others renee descartes first of first among them Ugh, whatever more like renee de fart <laughs> so we've established it's really difficult there's a lot of theoretical constraints to space exploration mm-hmm. let's go back to freeman dyson because another one of his ideas illustrates the possible reality of what human space exploration could look like. Dyson had a thought experiment called the Astro Chicken. (laughs) He first mentioned it in his book Disturbing the Universe in 1979, although I think he took the Astro Chicken name after somebody made fun of him at like a lecture. What do you mean? It's like an Astro Chicken? And he just started using that. So what this would be is a one kilogram artificially intelligent spacecraft. A chicken? No, an astro chicken is not a chicken at all. Okay. It's a one kilogram spacecraft fusing biological and technological concepts. And it would be launched into space by a conventional rocket as kind of an egg that would then at a pre-programmed point grow and change, uh, grow itself a couple of solar energy converters and uh, collectors and use those to power some ion drive engines. That it would use to fly around the universe. It wouldn't be able to presumably move faster than the speed of light, but there wouldn't be any people on board wasting their whole lives getting somewhere. It would take in fuel and food, quote unquote, from planetary surfaces, like it would land on planets it found and take in ice and hydrocarbons that it could use to fuel um, its processes. And uh, it would also take readings that it could then transmit back to Earth whenever it had a kind of clear signal path. Can it reproduce? Oh, that's an interesting point, Carrie. Uh, a related idea. It's actually called a von Neumann probe. Ooh. After physicist John von Neumann. I'm sure he called something else his von Neumann probe. Von Neumann never talked about a von Neumann probe exactly, but he did a lot of thought experiments with self-replicating machines. He was kind of the first to talk a lot about that concept. And so if you built this Astro Chicken type spaceship, <laughs> but you also gave it a factory kind of component to build another astro chicken. Now you've got a self-replicating machine that can go out there and explore the whole universe for you. 
if you give it enough time. Sure, because, you know, you just send one astro chicken out, it might die somehow, and then what's the point? Yeah, of course. But if you sp sent many of them out, some could even be specialized to take on different functions, like, for example, preparing a settlement for colonization. If we get really good at terraforming, we could have one of these little spaceships that flies to a planet and starts making it livable. And this is like biotechnological? Um, it's unclear to me. Freeman Dyson talked about it being a, bio, a biotechnological thing. I don't know if he means that it would literally be partially alive or if he just means we would borrow concepts from biology. Like he thought that when it was in planetary atmospheres, it would move around using a um, thruster similar to a bombardier beetle, which just takes in, it generates chemicals from the stuff it's taking in uh, in its food and then fires the chemicals out to move around. It farts? It yeah. Farts. So this would it's be like a, a jigglypuff in be Super a Smash Brothers. Yes, it farts around the stage and, turn, and sends people to sleep. So the Astro Chicken would be farting around space. As you do. And aren't yeah. we all just farting around space? You could have some of them terraform planets, and you could even seed a spaceship like this with embryos of humans. Or just genetic material that it could make embryos out of. Uh, stuff from other Earth life, and um, you could send that out to create colonies for you. This seems impossibly difficult to do. Well, this isn't like tomorrow's technology. No. But it is... But that seems closer than interplanetary or like interstellar travel. I think that's one of the most... Um, it's one of the most feasible methods that's been suggested for human interstellar exploration and travel. That's trippy. And then something like this could possibly gain consciousness and evolve to being its own kind of life form in a what way if it came back that seems like a sci-fi novel well it's funny you mentioned that carrie uh, there's a very similar concept in a sci-fi novel series called berserker by frank saberhagen in which a uh, precursor race to humanity called the creators who only have some trace remnants left in the whole universe, um, made at some point a weapon bent on destroying all organic life. They made it to win a war against uh, another alien species called the Red Race. Um, but the problem is the Berserkers, which were human to planet-sized, artificially intelligent weapons who could make more Berserkers, took their mandate a little too seriously, realized their creators were organic life, and turned on them. The creators were totally destroyed, and the Berserkers uh, roamed the galaxy until, in Fred Saberhagen's novels, they come upon humanity. Is this... Did the creators live on Earth? No. Okay, so this was just a separate thing. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's also not real. This is all science fiction. No, I know. I'm just... It, even science fiction is hard to follow. The point is, this kind of backs into another possible explanation for the Fermi Paradox. Because self-replicating probes could be created, like I said, to seed life or to kill it, right? And so, well, let's back up. If one species rises to galactic exploration, if one species is doing that, whether they're breaking the light speed barrier or whatever they're doing, they'll have such a massive technological advantage over the next species to emerge. What, a thousand years later? Now these spacefarers already have a thousand year head start on everybody else moving around the galaxy. 
Huge tech advantage. Maybe they're not nice guys. Yeah, I think that's always one of the possibilities with aliens. And so maybe new advanced civilizations, or pre-advanced civilizations, are systematically destroyed before they have a chance to germinate. This is kind of like the last thing we covered in the last episode, where humanities always kill themselves before they get to uh, space. Now this is another race that kills you before you get to space? Yes. Um, it's not a totally unique concept, Um the Berserker thing actually kind of reminds me of the engineers from Alien, mm-hmm. who it's never really explicitly explored. I mean, it's explored plenty. It's never explicitly stated in those uh, movies, but it's certainly it, not Prometheus. <laughs> well, Prometheus comes the closest, probably. Yeah, but it's not explicit about anything. <laughs> but in Prometheus, what we know from that movie is that the engineers created humans they continued to observe humans throughout the years. They didn't quite like the way that humanity was going. They decided to wipe the project, and they created deadly, horrible, mutating bioweapons to um, to do it. Why didn't they just blow up the Earth? Why didn't they just blow up the Earth? That's a good question. Maybe they wanted to do something else with it. You know, in Dragon Ball Z, the Saiyans wipe, <laughs> oh, out all, no. wipe out all life on a planet, but not to conquer it, just so they can kind of refurbish it and sell it, flip it. They're, they're world flippers. So it's basically like a really nice mid-century modern coffee table you find at Goodwill? Yeah, it's exactly like that, except it's Earth. Yeah, I mean, except that. Um, but the, the engineers reminded me of that, because I, th- I think, ultimately, the engineers fall victim to their creations as well. Whether that's the black liquid from Prometheus or the xenomorph. Sure. It'll get ya. It'll get ya. Hubris. Maybe there is life out there, but maybe the slow spread of civilization across the galaxy and all the uh, things standing in its way, maybe that just means... That we are living in kind of a galactic backwater, which was the premise from that first lunchtime conversation Fermi had with his buddies, that we're just in the sticks. We're in the galactic Florida swamp. Yes. Uh, In 2019, a University of Rochester astrophysicist named Adam Frank published a paper where he ran a ton of computer simulations about how galactic colonization might proceed. He assumed slower than light travel, as we are. Again, Alpha Centauri, four light years away from Earth. That means, let's say, any star is an eight-year-round trip. However, um, Frank and his colleagues found that in their, you know, irregular orbits and movements around the galaxy, uh, stars do occasionally swing closer to one another. And you can predict these movements. So if an advanced species took that into account, they could knock some time off of their trips by just jumping to stars when they swing closer. And they found that maybe the galaxy is pretty conquerable in like a couple hundred million years, given the right conditions. Oh, okay. Seems doable. Over all the simulations that they ran, Frank said that, and this part's going to seem fairly obvious, in universes where good planets were plentiful, civilizations expanded and flourished and conquered most of the galaxy. Uh, In universes where livable planets were rare, life never really got off the ground anywhere. Mm Mm-hmm. However, he said there was a third category of simulations where some parts of the universe remained unconquered for long stretches or indefinitely. Why was that? 
Uh, because worlds uh, die off, worlds lose contact. Remember that we're talking about thousands of years to get messages back and forth. So whole stretches of civilizations uh, fall out of contact, and maybe a bunch of your worlds die before you even hear they're having problems. Mm. That's like me with my plants. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> when I remember to water them again, they're dead. It <laughs> Shit, I should water those flowers upstairs. Yeah, exactly. You couldn't run a space empire, Carrie. I'm oh, sorry. Oh, no. 100% not. It's hard enough for me to keep Poe alive. She has a black thumb. I do. I do. Now, in these this third category of simulations, parts of the galaxy, for yeah, those various reasons, stayed un unconquered, unsettled for millions of years at a time. And that's long enough. If there's a million-year window where this part of the galaxy is not conquered, that's long enough that we wouldn't see any traces of the last contact here on Earth, even if aliens were around at some point. Got it. Gotcha. Contact might be the wrong word, because there might not have been people here at the time. Mm -hmm. It's also possible that aliens are closer than we think. Maybe they're everywhere, right? Maybe, maybe it's not about the distances involved. Maybe... Uh, FTL travel is possible. And if it's possible, somebody out there has probably achieved it. Which brings us back to our Fermi paradox. Where are they? Some have suggested the zoo hypothesis. Can you take a guess at what that is, Carrie? You might even have heard of it. My guess would be that we are some other race's pet and they just observe us. Sort of, yeah. Yeah, so uh, this concept was first seen in science fiction, as far as I can tell, in Olaf Stapledon's novel Star Maker from 1937, but it's uh, since been used by Arthur C. Clarke and Orson Scott Card and others. Um, Love Olaf Stapleton. Even um, Big Olaf head. Even in Star Trek, the crew of the Enterprise follows the prime directive, right? And they don't interfere with uh, any world's development. Mm-hmm. So under this theory, aliens would avoid interplanetary contamination, so to speak, um, and allow life to reach a certain point of civilization before they tried to make contact. Or maybe they would allow other life to reach out first rather than ever making initial contact. Hmm. Like alien bumble. It's worth... What? Oh, because the lady makes the first <laughs> yes. message. Sure. <laughs> and we are the lady. Mm-hmm. They we call it Mother Earth, after all. We actually do a similar thing with uncontacted tribes right here on Earth mm -hmm. in, say, Papua New Guinea or something like that. It's illegal to go and talk to these people because we don't want to contaminate their way of life. And it's and spread disease and spread disease. But it's, it's mostly really because the international communities kind of agreed that these people have a right to their culture. And there's no question that contact with the outside world would destroy it forever. Mm hmm. So maybe aliens are doing a, a similar thing. However, if there's if the universe is teeming with life, if there's tons of aliens out there, it seems a little unlikely that everybody would fall in line with this kind of a, a mandate. So I think the zoo hypothesis needs either a universal big boss who's really got everybody else in line, a galactic civilization or a um, Thanos empire, right? Um, maybe there's just only one civilization out there to worry about. Um, because if there were a bunch, it would only take one civilization not falling in line to blow up the zoo, right? Mm-hmm. And I could mean that literally, or I could just mean figuratively. Now, it's also possible that advanced extraterrestrial life is out there, but we can't see them. 
um, because we're not listening right. Or because we just haven't waited long enough. Hmm. SETI, the search for extra extraterrestrial intelligence, as we covered last week, scans distant stars for signs of life. Constantly. But what are signs of life? Well, they're just signs of life based on our knowledge of life. Yes, exactly. They're looking for radio and light radiation from technology leakage or from communications technology. But maybe they are not using radio waves and things like that. Yes, that's right. Um, Carrie, Earth has only been transmitting radio waves for like 150 years, maybe? Maybe? Maybe, yeah. And we're already transmitting a lot less of them because we're switching a lot of our uh, television and radio and internet over to lossless fiber optic cables instead of broadcasting. And given the short period of time, it just seems like civilizations, if they make radio noise at all, might only do it for a very brief period of time. And on a time scale for a civilization of thousands or millions of years, uh, they basically don't create them at all. Mm-hmm. Just a tiny blip. Some have suggested we should be looking for neutrinos instead. Uh, the idea that neutrino communications that we don't have any knowledge of or way to do yet could, could come into being. Uh, neutrinos are like neutrons, but they're teeny tiny. <laughs> Their mass is basically zero. Um, I don't know. I don't know physics. Don't look at me like that. I... This is just, I, I'm, I'll believe you. Whatever. Sure. All, yeah. Neutrinos. All, all I can tell you is big ear telescope astronomers have speculated that advanced aliens might be able to communicate that way. All right. But you for... could tell me that they communicate through clogging. I'll believe you. I, I don't know. But for now, we're scanning for radio and light signals. And we're sending them, too, occasionally. Um, the Arecibo message was sent out in 1974 by SETI, from the Arecibo uh, Observatory in Puerto Rico. It was written by, this won't surprise you, Frank Drake and Carl Sagan. I thought it was going to be like, John Arecibo. The message was, follow me here. Oh boy. The message was 1,679 binary digits, ones and zeros. 1,679 of them, because the only way to divide that out, it's the product of two prime numbers. So the only way to divide it out is 73 by 23, if you arrange the numbers in a grid. Okay. It's the only way you could put it into a box, is a 73 by 23 box. And if you do that, it creates a picture, the ones and the zeros do. Mm-hmm. In that picture, Frank Drake and Carl Sagan included the numbers 1 through 10. The atomic numbers of hydrogen, carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, and phosphorus the chemical formula for DNA nucleotides, and the estimated number of nucleotides in a person, along with a graphic of a double helix, the average physical height of humans, along with a little picture of a human, and a number listing Earth's population at the time, a graphic of the, of the solar system that pointed at Earth, <laughs> and a graphic of the Arecibo radio telescope with a reading of its diameter. So, hey, aliens, if you can read this, here we are. This is what we are. This is what we're listening with. They figured that numbers are so universal that aliens would probably be able to figure that out. Well, they beamed this message to star cluster M13. And Drake and Sagan 
both said that this is more of a celebration of human technological achievement, the idea that we can do this, um, than actual communication with extraterrestrials. Because aliens probably, numbers aren't you, we made numbers up. They're not universal. Aliens wouldn't be able to read binary. Um, they probably don't know what numbers are. Their understanding of mathematics uh, is probably, um, or at least might be, different than ours. Mm-hmm. In addition, cluster M13 is 25,000 light years away. So that message is going to take a while to get there. Yeah. How, so it was transmitted through radio, uh, radio waves? Yeah. So it's just traveling in space. At roughly the speed of light towards star cluster M13. And they're just hoping that someone has something to receive that message. I don't think they even really are. It's all, it was a stunt. It was a publicity stunt. Probably a very expensive one. I don't think it was. Like Carl Sagan's got some time on his hands to throw some digits together. Sure. I guess. Now, we've also received transmissions that some believe are extraterrestrial in origin. The most famous of these is the wow signal. Love the wow signal. Which was... Discovered on August 15th, 1977 by Jerry R. Ehrman. He was a physicist working at the Big Ear Radio Telescope, as I, which I just mentioned. Oh, I thought you were just making fun of their big ears. No, it's literally a big <laughs> ear. And that's what it's called. It's like, that's not very nice for these nerds. These things are never creatively named. The Big Ear, the Large Hadron Collider. Well, the Big Ear is kind of fun. Anyway, this is a big telescope at Ohio State University. And Jerry Ehrman noted that while the constantly rotating telescope passed the direction of the Sagittarius uh, constellation, it received an unmodulated continuous wave, like a sine wave, which would just sound like... That's beautiful. For 72 seconds. Every time. Well, it was just 72 seconds and then it was gone. But like when the... The telescope swung back. Did it do the same thing in the same area? It, or was it just that one time? It was just that one time. The telescope actually has two horns, and only one of them picked up the frequency. And it's impossible to tell which one because of the way the telescope works. Now, I know this, but why did he call it the wow frequency? Well, because, and you can see a picture of this. Actually, we should post a picture on the page for this episode. On the readout from the machine, Ehrman circled the readings... Uh, of the four, 14, 20 megahertz signal and wrote in red pen, wow, exclamation point. It's so second grade teacher. I love it. Unfortunately for Ehrman, it was never found again. And he even admitted we should have seen it again. We looked 50 times. Unless it was only transmitted once. Why would you see it again? Maybe it's just a minute long signal and that was it. That's true, but we've never seen another flash of information coming from that part of the galaxy. Well, maybe they only sent the one, and that's when it hit us. It's been suggested, most depressingly, that it could just be an Earth signal reflected off some space debris. Mm. But it's worth noting that 1420 megahertz is a protected spectrum for strictly astronomical use, and you're not allowed to broadcast on it on Earth. I mean, yeah, but since when has that stopped anyone? Yeah, it's true, but it might be hard to get equipment that broadcasts at that frequency, but that doesn't mean no one does or has. Sagan. 
more recently efforts to listen for alien life have gotten a little more cred, a little more pull, a little more big, uh, most notably with Breakthrough Listen that was started in January 2016. It's a 10-year project, and uh, all the money's coming from this Russian billionaire. Um, but it's being worked on by Frank Drake, and um, Stephen Hawking was actually a big part of the uh, kind of genesis of this project. He actually uh, said at its launch... In an infinite universe, there must be other life. There is no bigger question. It is time to commit to finding the answer. Fair enough. That's what Hawking believed until the day that he died. Breakthrough Listen is currently scanning stars for radio signals from the Green Banks Observatory and the Parks Observatory, which are the first and second largest steerable telescopes in the world. Steerable? Steerable. Oh. You can move them. <laughs> I was like, I could steer the telescope we have upstairs. It's also looking for laser transmissions using the automated Planet Finder, which is another telescope that, as it sounds, is automated. I hope that's trademarked. It's at it's at the Lick Observatory. Lick? Mm-hmm. That's our, that's our old friend Lick. Breakthrough Listen's plan is to search one million nearby stars, as well as the centers of a hundred other galaxies. It is going to search 10 times more sky than any project before it and scan the entire 1 to 10 gigahertz range of... It's going to do all this within 10 years? Yeah, that's what they say. They were, for the first couple of years of the project, they were heavily using um, crowd computing, which is kind of cool. They had the SETI at home program that you could... They released it in the 90s. You could install it on your computer, and what it would do is just, in the background, use whatever processing power you weren't using to crunch data for SETI all the time. <laughs> that seems like it could be used for ill, though. Yeah, well, I think it's been... I think I've... Last year... I'm not going to find it right now, and I, I don't know what it was, but last year I think I saw a crowd computing thing used for another purpose. If listeners uh, know what it was, get back at me. That sounds familiar to me, too. But I think it was something I was in favor of. I, I don't remember. Might also be part of the Bitcoin mining, which I really don't understand, but I know it takes uh, a lot of processing power. I do think people work to put their processors together on those as well, yes. Those two big telescopes are looking for leakage like the leakage you see off the Earth. And they say Earth-level leakage would be detectable from five parsecs away, which um, is a distance that apparently covers the 43 closest stars to Earth. They also claim that they would be able to detect technology the size of an aircraft radar in the nearest thousand stars. Okay. Here are their results so far. On 83017, there were 15 radio bursts from a dwarf galaxy 3 billion light years away. No more information has been gathered, but obviously extraterrestrial life can't be ruled out. No other readings have come from that galaxy. In December 2020, a 982 megahertz signal was detected from Proxima Centauri-ish, somewhere around that star. Uh, it has been called Breakthrough Listen Candidate 1. Not as catchy as WOW signal. It's not. But it is called by, like, it's pretty agreed upon that that's the first signal since the WOW signal that's on par with it in terms of, like, WOW. It's the Yowza signal. It's the Yow signal. <laughs> of course, given the crazy distances, there could be advanced life out there where we can't see them. The Arecibo telescope we mentioned would be able to see Earth up to 0.3 light years away, as far as its energy. 
um, goes. And of course, that's less than a tenth of the distance to Proxima Centauri. Mm-hmm. Even if someone was trying to reach us, we would have to be scanning the right area of space and the right band of frequencies. And if your civilization lasts 10,000 years and the next one over is a thousand years away, it's unlikely you're going to get much of a meaningful dialogue going. Sure. It's also possible that, well, look, we're not broadcasting other than the Arecibo message and a few other gimmicks. Um, we're just listening to see if we can hear aliens. What if there's other life in the universe and they're all just doing the same thing? That's Everyone's listening and no one's talking. Yes. That's mm-hmm. been suggested. That's actually literally what they say. With my knowledge of people and especially men, I don't think that's very likely. Well, Carrie, keep in mind, we only know of one civilization and 100% of them do this. Humans. It's the official policy of SETI that, quote, no response to a signal or other evidence of extraterrestrial intelligence should be sent until appropriate international consultations take place. But they did send out the Arecibo signal. And that's contact, isn't it? That was a celebration of human technological achievement. It's technically a message sent to wherever it was being sent to. Yeah, sure. So was the 35-year anniversary of Arecibo when... (laughs) The Arecibo Observatory beamed 10,000 tweets out to the same star cluster, hashtagged chasing UFOs to promote Discovery Channel's chasing (laughs) UFOs series, (laughs) along with verbal messages from celebrities, including Stephen Colbert. Well, at least there's that. I like him as an ambassador to alien kind. So do I. But again, it's 35 years behind the first message they sent out, and they're both still... A couple thousand years away. <laughs> the aliens get here like several thousand years from now. I want the, the funny late night guy. The Colbert. Take me to your Colbert. <laughs> this is the longest into an episode that we've gone to our first break, Carrie. Sure is. Yeah. It's gotten out of control. Um, but when we come back, I'm going to cover the last answer to the Fermi paradox. They're already here. <gasps> True terrors of horror, bizarre happenings, unexplainable events. On our podcast, Disturbed, Terror Takes Center Stage. Each episode is a journey into the darkest corners of human existence, delving into bone-chilling tales of kidnappings, serial killers, maniacs, and the very essence of your worst nightmares coming to life on this weekly true horror show. Disturbed is not for the faint of heart. It's an exploration of real, unadulterated horror sourced from everyday people. Each episode is a descent into the macabre, where we narrate stories that will leave you on the edge of your seat and crawling in your skin. We navigate the disturbing narratives that lurk in the shadows, offering a raw and unfiltered listen into the most terrifying aspects of the human experience. Enter at your own risk and let the unsettling tales unfold in the haunting realm of Disturbed. And remember, listeners, stay safe out there. You're here, which means you love podcasts, but are you looking for another kind of entertainment on the go? 
Audible is the leading provider of spoken word entertainment and audiobooks, ranging from bestsellers to memoirs, news, business, and more. By signing up for a free trial at www.audibletrial.com slash scary, you'll receive access to thousands of titles with one credit toward any audiobook and two Audible originals, free during your trial and then with subscription each month after. Personally, my favorite Audible title is also my favorite book, It by Stephen King. I went into this audiobook ready to judge because I've loved this novel since I was a kid, but between the stellar production value and the truly breathtaking narration performance by actor Steven Weber, I was 100% all in. If you like this podcast and have a strong stomach, I think you will be too. Not into audiobooks? No problem. With podcasts, theatrical performances, guided meditations, and more, Audible offers something for everyone. So what are you waiting for? Get started now. And hey, you'll be helping support the podcast. Visit our link at www.audibletrial.com slash ain't it scary for a free trial. That's www.audibletrial.com slash A-I-N-T-I-T-S-C-A-R-Y. Audible. Listen more. Welcome back. When last we left you, we covered the next couple of answers to the Fermi Paradox, just the ideas that maybe extraterrestrial life is out there, but they're not coming, or we can't hear them. Or that they're listening and not sending any signals to us. It's also possible, though, Carrie, that they're already here. I know plenty of people that would tell you the same thing. And that's where we get into UFO conspiracy theory. Yay! Because if aliens are here and people have noticed, it's very unlikely that the government has not noticed. And that would mean that they're actively hiding the presence of UFOs and extraterrestrials from uh, humanity. Spoiler alert, we'll be talking a little about this in our news segment this week. We're going to be talking about this all the time on this podcast, but uh, this is a nice broad strokes background version of it. Lots happening right now in the UFO official government sphere. For a lot of people, um, American UFO conspiracy theory starts with Roswell, 1947, when, of course, the U.S. Air Force announced through a press release that a flying disc, quote unquote, had been recovered near Roswell, New Mexico. Within a few days, they recanted that story, uh, withdrew the press release, and officials say that they had just misidentified a weather balloon. Typical. Now, in the early 90s, of course, uh, consp- by the way, interestingly, conspiracies didn't really spring up around the Roswell stuff until the 70s, for the most part. That's when the UFO ufology really... That's when everyone was doing LSD and feeling trippy and connected to the universe. Talk about Roswell conspiracies and people claiming they had seen corpses of little green men and uh, people who claimed they had stolen pieces of the wreckage, etc., etc., grew throughout the 70s and 80s until in the early 90s the air force went back and did another report on roswell an internal investigation um after which they determined that the balloons that had been recovered in the roswell incident were from project mogul which was not technically a weather balloon project but they were microphones they were putting on balloons to send way up and um, listen for russian nuclear tests sure whatever I will say that I think Project Blue Book uh, was canceled or ended in 69. 
up top my brother so that's probably why a lot of the stuff came out in the 70s because there were a bunch of out of work scientists blabbing to people some things were declassified that's, seems seems like the time frame works. That's right. Project Blue Book, for those of you who don't know, was started in March 1952 as the government's, um, you know, way of investigating UFO reports. It was basically our X-Files. It was a very Mulder and Scully thing. And like you said, it lasted... Just like us. Lasted till December 1969, over which period the Air Force investigated thousands of UFO claims. The guy in charge was an Edward J. Ruppelt. And when it was started, uh, you might remember... Ruppelt, Carrie, if our listeners want to go back to our Georgia Damsky episode, Ruppelt actually went to Adamski's hamburger stand as one of his early Blue Book um, <laughs> assignments. Yeah, this was episode seven or eight. Yeah. Of real, ours. Real early. Oh, we've come so long. We've come a long way, baby. And yet we have light years to go. The conclusions of Project Blue Book at the end of its 17 year run were as follows. No UFO evaluated by the U.S. Air Force had been a national security threat. Nothing investigated by the U.S. Air Force had been impossible given modern known technology. And there was no evidence that any of the unidentified vehicles were piloted by extraterrestrials. That's at least what they've told us. Now, you can look through Project Blue Book's files. You can read all of them. Uh, at least all and the- nothing's redacted oh things are redacted mm-hmm. and also there's not explanations given for every one of these ufos some of them are definitely left unidentified blue book just said that there wasn't any evidence that it came from another planet okay there's no evidence that poe didn't come from another planet for his part edward ruppel felt that the usaf had been schizophrenic the air force had been schizophrenic between open and transparent and secret and dismissive in their approach to aliens. And that's what gave rise to rampant conspiracy theory over the next few decades. Yeah, sometimes covering up things that don't really need to be covered up uh, just make things more mysterious Mm -hmm. and make the conspiracies even bigger. In 1956, a guy named Gray Barker released a book called They Knew Too Much About Flying Saucers. They Knew Too Much which publicized Men in Black reports from guys like Harold Dahl and Albert Bender and gave rise to the general belief that there were these black-suited guys showing up and, uh, you know, warning people away from alien investigation. Albert Bender, one of our hometown boys. The Men in Black were thought to be government agents keeping things hush-hush. In 1984, though, maybe the biggest piece of UFO conspiracy lore came out with the Majestic 12 document. Ufologist Jamie Shandera got an envelope in the mail with some film in it, and the film had photographs of eight pages of documents that seemed to be a briefing for Dwight D. Eisenhower in November 1952. Now, in November 1952, of course, Eisenhower had just won the presidency, and this is evidently what the executive branch felt the need to get him up to speed on before he came into office. Yeah, because if you want to give secret information to an incoming president, the best way to do that is a document. Absolutely. You want to write everything down and make sure the records are kept. (laughs) The memorandum revealed that Harry Truman had organized a secret committee of 12 in 1952. It detailed the concealment of the Roswell crash by this group and made recommendations of how to use the recovered tech and how the U.S. under Eisenhower should deal with aliens in the future. Wi-Fi? Was this the Wi-Fi? 
I'll get to the Wi-Fi in a second. I need to know. We got to wait for Eisenhower. There was a further crash uh, in 1950 that was also mentioned in the Majestic 12 document as having been recovered. Is this something that we know about or was this completely new information from this document? No, there was another crash in the vicinity, another supposed crash in the vicinity of Roswell. The government said was balloons in 1950. Here's some quotes from the Majestic 12 document memo. During the course of the operation, serial reconnaissance discovered that four human-like beings had apparently ejected from the craft at some point before it exploded. These had fallen to Earth about two miles east of the wreckage site. All four were dead and badly decomposed due to action by predators and exposure to the elements during the approximately one-week time period which had elapsed before their discovery. Hmm. The memo goes on to talk about how, quote, Civilian and military witnesses in the area were debriefed, and news reporters were given the effective cover story that the object had been a misguided weather research balloon. Yeah, super effective, guys. And a word about the occupants of the craft. Although these creatures are human-like in appearance, the biological and evolutionary process responsible for their development has apparently been quite different from those observed or postulated for Homo sapiens. What was weird about them? It didn't say in the Majestic 12 document. <laughs> well, you don't want to come into that stuff to paper, Carrie. Oh, yeah, certainly not. Shandera and his friends Stanton Friedman and Bill Moore, noted conspiracy theorists mm -hmm. uh, and alien guys, said that um, they received several anonymous messages after that. After the 1984 mailing incident? Yes. Well, because obviously the Majestic 12 documents... Shandera immediately went to the public with them, and people found them not too convincing. Hmm. But Shandera and his ufologist friends, Stanton Friedman and Bill Moore, uh, started receiving anonymous messages that eventually led them to search some unclassified files in the National Archives, where they found the supposed Cutler-Twining memo. This is a document allegedly from Eisenhower assistant Robert Cutler to General Nathan Twining, and it contains a direct reference to the Majestic 12. Interesting. But that's been investigated by skeptics uh, like Philip Klass, who says that, um, well, Robert Cutler was actually out of the country that day. And also the Truman signature on the memo was copy pasted from a Truman memo to Vannevar Bush another day. So the one with the Majestic 12 mention was a fake? Yeah. Well, that's depressing. The FBI has investigated, and you may be surprised to know that they say the Majestic 12 is completely bogus. Okay. We'll have, we'll have a link to where you <laughs> to can... To be fair, that's like me saying that it's fact that posed the best boy. I know it to be true, but I'm also his mom. Yes. You can look on the FBI website at the Majestic 12 documents, um, and all of them do, in fact, have the word bogus written across the pages in Sharpie. Spreading it on a little thick, you guys. Bogus. Come on, get over it. Bill Moore, one of these ufologists, uh, later said Majestic 12 might, might have been a disinformation campaign. He's like, well, if it wasn't real, maybe. maybe they did this to make us look stupid. Or, well, to make, he thought to make U.S.'s enemies look stupid or, or to distract them from legitimate U.S. Air Force projects. And that brings us into the Eisenhower era, Carrie. Let's do it. Conspiracy theorists claim the following. <laughs> that in I don't think we have time for this. In February 1954, Eisenhower 
was on vacation in Palm Springs. This is real. And he missed a public dinner. He claimed to have a, a toothache the day and, uh, that day and had to go to the dentist. But what former Navy commander Charles Suggs says Eisenhower was doing that day... Suggs? ...was meeting with aliens at Edwards Air Force Base, which is nearby Palm Springs, actually. Why does it have to be he either has a toothache or he's meeting aliens? What if it's like he was seeing his mistress? Well, Commander Suggs says he was in Edwards Base and saw Eisenhower have a conversation with two Nordic-looking blue-eyed aliens. You remember the Nordic-looking aliens from our friend George Adamski? Can't forget. So this is the influence that he had, Carrie. When we talk about, I'll, I'll talk about Pleiadians in a second. These Nordic aliens are, this is all from George. Because he wanted to be around sexy, blonde-haired men all the time. Or they were from space, Sean. Or that. Or maybe Eisenhower was just talking to two Norwegians. He could have been talking to two Norwegians, but Commander Suggs says Eisenhower had a pleasant discussion with the two blonde men, but wouldn't agree to cease U.S. nuclear tests. So obviously a conversation with aliens. Still seems like they could be Norwegians. <laughs> or German, yeah. <laughs> There would be no treaty signed between Eisenhower and the Nordic aliens on that day. But the following year, busy social calendar, he was apparently <laughs> meeting other aliens at Holloman Air Force Base. This according to former New Hampshire State Representative Henry McElroy. He says he saw a document while he was a member of the Veteran Affairs Committee that referred to extraterrestrials and an opportunity for the president to meet with them in 1955. Mm-hmm. According to ufologist Art Campbell, 300 people, he doesn't specify who they were, but he says 300 people saw Air Force One land at Holloman Air Force Base, uh, at which point the pilot instructed the tower to turn off the radar while the president's plane was on the tarmac. Once the radar was turned off, three round objects were seen in the sky. One landed near Air Force One, while one stayed hovering overhead and one seemed to disappear. A man, believed to be the president, descended the ramp of Air Force One, shook hands with a being at the bottom of the ramp of the saucer. And but did he salute? He didn't. He didn't. He shook hands and he entered. 45 minutes later, the man left. He wasn't wearing a hat. Eisenhower? Yep. He had lost his hat while he was inside. So when he came out, people were sure he was Eisenhower. When he went in, they were like, I think it was the president. <laughs> Timothy Good. Another conspiracy theorist uh, says that what happened there was that Ike signed a treaty with the Greys. So these aren't even like human-ish looking. Nope. These are things. little guys with big heads and big black eyes. They're the Roswell aliens that you see on merch, basically. Yeah, they're the, the typical X-Files aliens. The treaty with the Greys supposedly contained the following provisions. Now, where, where did Timothy get this information? You can dig and dig in these these alien conspiracy things always come back to. No, I I know from from looking up like the Lost Cosmonauts and everything. There's assertions that are made across many a GeoCities website. Yes, but I, you can't ever find the original. Can't find the originals. A lot of this stuff does come from Bill Cooper, I believe. Oh, he has problems. The pale horse book. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There's a lot going on there. Yeah, and there's, I mean, we, we can get into it. I think there's some racial stuff going on. It's tough. Anyway, the provisions of this agreement that Eisenhower supposedly made with the Greys are the following. 
they would help us develop technology like our Wi-Fi, Caroline, like the space program that would develop over the next few years, like the internet, like computing. All of these things happened after the 1950s. Why? Aliens. In addition, the aliens would not make similar treaties and help other nations of the Earth. Now, what did they get in return for this, the Greys? You know this, Carrie. People's sweet, sweet buttholes. Eisenhower supposedly gave the gray aliens permission to abduct humans for experimentation, uh, but only if the names of the humans abducted and experimented on were always provided to the Majestic 12. Do they have to sign off on it? No, she's my, she's my aunt's friend. She can't, she can't be abducted. Pick Bar- someone else. Barney Hill? Yeah, sure. Touch his penis. <laughs> Make him scream. There was one one last encounter at Holloman Air Force Base, maybe, in 1964, when uh, some witnesses saw three round craft over Holloman Airspace. Uh, this was actually caught on film, these three, it's, you know, just three blurs moving weirdly, like they always are. Um, but witnesses claim that one of these craft landed at the base, and that three humanoids in tight-fitting jumpsuits got out. So there's an ongoing communication there. When you, when you listen to a Bill Cooper, when you listen to... A Timothy Good. What do they say is out there? When we talk about aliens, what are they? Um, well, usually it's a, a, a scream of, they're coming to kill us. Yes, of course. But I mean, what are the aliens themselves? We have three. <laughs> I mentioned the greys, right? Alien conspiracy theorists will tell you that there are no fewer than three different kinds of greys living on this planet. I've heard there's 50 shades of grey. <laughs> That's Actually. true. And that's and that can get Fifty Shades Darker as well. <laughs> the greys that come from the Zeta Reticuli system are small. These are the small guys who you picture. These are the guys you picture. Take me to your leader. They're three or four feet tall. They've got the big black eyes. Zeta Reticuli greys work for evil reptilian overlords who want to take over humanity. Mm-hmm. But they secretly want to work with us to overthrow their reptilian masters, supposedly. So they're good guys. They're, Interesting. They're, okay. There are also Bellatrix Greys, who, who are even shorter. Oh. And apparently they're really mean. Hmm. Well, that'll happen. They don't like contacting. They don't like contact with humanity at all. Then you have the Orion Greys from obviously the Orion constellation and they're very tall seven to eight feet tall with big noses yeah what and their kind of whole thing is they just love experimenting on humans it's their favorite love those sweet sweet buttholes that's right um so the grays are kind of you know i don't know the grays are a spectrum the grays are generally presented as not trustworthy but not necessarily evil either it's just like humanity's a means to an end to them those shifty grays then you have your Pleiadians, and these are the good aliens, the only ones that most UFO conspiracy theorists will tell you that you can trust. Tell me these aren't the Nordic white guys. You mean like our friend Orthon of Venus? Is he a Pleiadian? No, the Pleiadians are from the Pleiades, which is a, <laughs> well, a, a, a star Well, I was starting to get concerned that it was like a racial thing, as most conspiracies tend to do, where it's like, oh, the small ones with the big noses, they're shifty and you can't trust them. Yeah. But you, you like the, the blonde, blue-eyed ones that are very pale and look like they're from Norway. I don't know why you would think anything like that would be happening, Carrie. Um, the Pleiadians are, are Nordic-looking, blonde, fair-skinned aliens who are oh. the only ones who know what humanity is good for. They also created all life on Earth. And um, 
So they're white and they're the best. They're not only white, they are where humanity started. And any other colors you see in humanity might be from experimentation from other aliens. They're Aryans. They're Aryans. Oh, no. This is where all conspiracy theory if you dig deep enough it and always far enough. hits the anti-semitic point of no return and that goes for it's not just anti-semitism it goes for all racism but uh. and so that's where we get to and that's where we get to i mean there's a lot of fun stuff out there there's dolce air force base which oh we'll go into that someday. we'll do a whole episode on that there's a just if you don't know there's after there was a rash of cattle mutilations in the late 70s near Dolce, New Mexico, uh, this guy, Paul Benowitz, ran around in the desert uh, listening to radio uh, garbage and um, um, scrap signals and stuff and uh, eventually convinced himself and a bunch of other people that there was a joint human-alien Air Force base under Dolce, New Mexico on the Colorado border where um, aliens were being bred with humans to create alien-human hybrids. Um, that's a very common thing in alien uh, conspiracy theory because of the racial element. There's always this idea that the aliens are trying to breed with us and weaken our genetic stock, uh, which makes me uncomfortable. Just makes us stronger, yo. Mix it up. Why not get some aliens in here, right? Why not? These days, the UFO... I mean, maybe... You know, I, I have real bad allergies right now. Maybe if I mixed it up with an alien, our children wouldn't have any allergies. Horizontal, well, my children. Horizontal gene transfer. It's just like uh, the xenomorph again. Horizontal gene transfer. That's what she said. You, can't, you still can't put on my genes. <laughs> That's not what I meant, baby. <laughs> These days in the UFO conspiracy world, the biggest buzzword is disclosure. And we'll be getting to that again in the news. <laughs> That's been the hotness since the late 90s. Um, the Disclosure Project was founded by ufologist Stephen M. Greer in, I think, 1993. About when X-Files came out, yeah. But it wasn't until May 2001 when that group, and presumably still just consisting of Stephen Greer, held a press conference at the National Press Club in D.C. demanding Congress hold hearings on, quote, secret U.S. involvement with UFOs and extraterrestrials. The disclosure conversation has evolved a little bit since then. In 2017, Blink-182 guitarist Tom DeLonge started appearing at UFO conventions with, quote, very exciting news about disclosure and how he had been talking to some of the top people in government and he was going to get the alien information out there. Um, and then it turned out that he was just starting a uh, radio and TV company called To The Stars Academy. Well, that wasn't a former, just it. With a former CIA uh, director. They also had other people involved, and they're doing some research, apparently. I yeah, Tom claims to Tom, the Stars Academy. Tom claims that to the Stars Academy will slowly disseminate information that the U.S. government has on aliens and alien technology through arts and entertainment like science fiction, and also then eventually getting us some of these technologies like flying cars and... Uh, um, psychic communication that the aliens have been keeping from us i'm all for it give the blink 182 guitarist all of the information why not do it in a final analysis carrie which fermi paradox answer do you feel like you want to go with why have we not why ain't we hanging out with aliens right now well i'm gonna automatically knee jerk my answer 
at least to something that includes there being life out there. Why? Um, be, like, my opinion hasn't changed on the fact that I think it's improbable and and almost impossible that we're the only living, quote-unquote, beings on in the whole universe, which is infinite, question mark. So it just seems completely absurd to me to even think that we're the only living beings, at least with some sort of consciousness. Yeah. So I automatically will will cut out the ones that say there's nothing. But beyond that, I'm still stuck. I mean, you've provided a lot of good arguments. Uh, it could be impossible to do interplanetary travel. Uh, it could just be that you can't travel through black holes or wormholes or anything like that. Um, what is it called in Star Wars? The, the super fast travel. Hyperdrive? Hyperdrive, yeah. Uh, that that just simply does not exist anywhere. There, there are laws of physics, and that is one of them. Um, yeah, in Star Wars, there's an alternate dimension you can travel through called hyperspace where the distances are shorter. Yes. And where objects in our dimension just create mass shadows rather than actually being there um it's you know that's not science that's fantasy right but i mean something like that using parallel dimensions to travel i mean you know it all sounds crazy right it all sounds like science fiction in star trek you've got a warp drive you wrap a little bubble of hyperspace around your just your ship and uh, it can move real far real fast sure why not (laughs) um yeah, I mean, I don't know if that's the case. I don't know if it's that we're somehow the most technologically advanced, which doesn't seem likely. But I guess someone would have to be in a whole universe, right? Mm-hmm. Someone has to be the most and someone has to be the least. Yeah, there's a non there's a non-zero chance of that for sure. Yeah. Um and then it could be another thing where like they don't care <laughs> or they don't want to meet us. So I don't know. I'm still stuck on what, which aliens exist answer I pick. But I I will always lean towards um, the aliens exist answer. And in terms of my own personal beliefs, I've seen some weird stuff in the sky. I don't know if it's aliens, but I think I've seen some stuff that can't be explained by planes that I've seen. You know, just normal stuff, even military stuff that we know of. I think plenty of this stuff could be off the books sorts of things, whether it's our government or another government. Who's to say? But I I know what I saw. And um, some of the, the movements and things that I've seen can't be easily explained because, you know, the, the speed, the the maneuvers that I've seen happen. This is before drones were really popular. I was going to say, that's what makes it tough now. Drones move like UFOs have always been yes. described as moving. Yes. Um, yeah, just some crazy stuff. And I don't know if I believe that's aliens, but I believe that there certainly are UFOs and there's things that people aren't telling us, whether that's our government or another one. Hmm. Um. So, yeah, I don't know if aliens have ever actually visited Earth. But to me, it's more likely than not. 
than not any alien existing in the whole galaxy if i had to choose between it or the whole universe yeah the the only problem for me with where well where a lot of conspiracy theories break down is i find it hard to believe the government a government as big as ours would be able to keep the secret for that long well the thing is (laughs) you could either write off a lot of these people as being unhinged which there's never been someone unhinged in our government um or you could say, well, these people that are saying there is weird stuff out there, they're telling the truth. Astronauts have said that. People that have had positions of power and uh, intelligence in the government have said it. We just haven't really believed them. But that's a choice. Yeah, but I've also never heard a report that you couldn't find something else a little bit more in keeping with my worldview uh, to explain. Yeah, but I'm sure you could do that about things that are true as well. Yeah, of course. Sometimes, Sean, truth, stranger than fiction. Well, of course. But I, I think the most likely thing, again, we don't understand physics very well on this planet. We don't understand anything very well. But what we understand suggests that you just can't move faster than the speed of light. So unless someone tells me that there's uh, some good ways around that, I, I don't have a hard time believing that species might live a long time out here get pretty advanced you know uh, uh, have it's just so far away it's just so far away and they don't spread very far because because everything's so far away so is that what you feel that there's life in the universe yeah that is what i feel um Partly because I think the smartest people in this discussion, when you get your your Carl Sagan's and your Stephen Hawking's and like the the smartest people all seem to, or the people the world agrees are the smartest, you know what I mean? The pop culture smartest all seem to go like, yeah, of course, there's got to mathematically, there has to be something out there. If Stephen Hawking says it, who am I to to disagree? And they believe in aliens, but they don't believe in God. So that'll tell you something. (laughs) They always go by probability. Yeah. So if it's probable to them, why not me with my podcast? Well, in that, <laughs> remember that 25,000 light years to the center of our galaxy and that there's billions of galaxies. There's just so many stars. There's no way that there's not anything else. That's what I think. It's it might as well be impossible. But still non-zero. Mm. Hi, Vanessa. Hi, Amy. And hi, Hi, True True Crime Crime fans. We're the co-hosts of She Goes by Jane. Every week, we'll be covering the story of a missing or unidentified woman in the United States. Stories you may have heard before. And ones whose stories didn't make it into the news. We've been covering these stories for a while. First in Amy's book of poetry, Doe. And then in Vanessa's documentary, She. But now we want to share them with you here on She Goes by Jane. And each week, we'll be joined by a special guest. We'll read a poem in honor of the women we talk about. Can we say who? We can say who. We'll be joined by actresses like Coco Jones and Gabrielle Ruiz. And musicians like Stephanie Quayle and Kelly Moneymaker, along with authors like Louise Penny and Catherine McKenzie. So check out She Goes by Jane wherever you get your podcasts, or check out Evergreen Podcasts and their true crime channel, Killer Podcasts. We can't wait to bring you these stories.
Connecticut's first ever paranormal convention is coming this summer. Paracon! Paracon will be held Saturday and Sunday, July 24th and 25th, 2021, at the Haunted Ansonia Armory in Ansonia, Connecticut. And guess who's going to be there? This Haunted Weekend will feature special guests, paranormal investigations, seminars, panels, vendors, exhibits, and much, much more. Paracon is presented by Nick Grossman, head of Ghost Storm Investigations and collector of some of the rarest paranormal artifacts in the world, and Charles Rosenay, founder of Stratford's Fright Haven and director of Tours of Terror, ghost tours to Transylvania, Prague, England, and all over haunted Connecticut. Yeah, we've been to Fright Haven. Uh, when we went, he had a... One One of the rooms was... Uh all clown themed it was a bunch of scary clown stuff but you wore 3d glasses it was pretty cool that was the saint valentine's day massacre wasn't it Uh, yes they do seasonal offerings not just halloween that was the saint valentine's day massacre it was a beautiful date our first valentine's day so who will be at paracon guests include paranormal investigator barry pirro Author Bill Hall, who you may remember wrote The World's Most Haunted House, subject of episodes 17 and 18 of the podcast. Yep. Go check those out. Some of our very best work, Mm -hmm. I think. And us. Yeah, we'll be there too, in person to chat all things scary. So come on down and meet us. I guess I spoiled your surprise there. But yes, we will have a booth at Paracon and we're so damn excited that we'll be there. Yeah. Do you like to shop? Well, they'll have their own bizarre bazaar. Haunt artists, horror authors, cryptozoologists, artisans, occult sellers, and much more will be there. So bring some bones, the money kind, and a good pair of walking shoes. You can bring the other kind of bones, too, if you if you want. Yeah, maybe you can sell them. Who knows? We hope to see you there. Get your tickets now for only $9.99 per day through May 1st at www.paracon.org. Is that a special deal for us or is that just how cheap tickets are? That's just how cheap tickets are until May 1st. Then it goes up like five bucks. Oh, you guys. Still this, still a deal. This is a bargain at any price. <laughs> Paracon, Connecticut's first paranormal convention. We're crying saucers. UFOs trended this week on Twitter as the CBS News magazine show 60 Minutes tackled the story of the U.S. government's grudging acknowledgement of unidentified aerial phenomena, more commonly known as UFOs. This is searingly relevant this week. (laughs) It's a little too spicy for me. With a declassified report on UAPs due to be handed over to the Senate Intelligence Committee in June, 60 Minutes interviewed several big names, including Luis Elizondo, former head of the Pentagon's Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program. Ooh. Retired Navy Commander Dave Fravor, whose F-A-18F squadron encountered a UAP in 2004. And Christopher Mellon, former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Intelligence. So, Sean, these are people you're talking about. People in the government coming out and saying things. Are any of them involved in Through the Stars Academy? Uh, I don't think any of these are, but I didn't check. I didn't do my To the Stars Academy check. (laughs) There 
was even new declassified footage shown by the television show showing a unidentified object flying off the coast of Florida captured by the military. The visual, visual, not the object. I see. Lieutenant Ryan Graves told the show that pilots training off the Atlantic coast see that thing all the time, stating, quote, every day, every day for at least a couple years. Wow. When pressed if these objects could be Russian or Chinese technology, Graves responded, quote, I'm worried, frankly. You know, if these were tactical jets from another country that were hanging out up there, it would be a massive issue. But because it looks slightly different, we're not willing to actually look at the problem in the face. We're happy to just ignore the fact that these are out there watching us every day. I don't know that he's saying that's an alien. He's just saying it's dangerous. Yeah, he's saying it's a UFO. It's It's unidentified. Yeah. Senator Marco Rubio, who had initially pressed for the upcoming disclosure document, discussed the stigma about UFO intelligence senators face on Capitol Hill. Quote, I mean, some of my colleagues are very interested in this topic and some kind of, you know, giggle when you bring it up. But I don't think we can allow the stigma to keep us from having an answer to a very fundamental question. I want us to take it seriously and have a process to take it seriously. I want us to have a process to analyze the data every time it comes in. That there be a place where this is cataloged and constantly analyzed. Maybe a Project Blue Book. I was going to say, and we'll call it Project Blue Book. <laughs> Until we get some answers. Maybe it has a very simple answer. Maybe it doesn't. I suppose we'll see, Sean, next month. It's weird that they stopped Project Blue Book and they don't have, like, a replacement. Yeah, it's almost suspicious. <laughs> no, but I... It's yeah, it's like... super weird. Why wouldn't you? Yeah. And they stopped Project Blue Book at, like, the height of the Cold War? What are you thinking? These are the same guys who put together the Warren Report. You know, what are you going to do? And we all know that was a bunch of baloney. That's it for this episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Ain't It Scary. And check out our website at ain'titscary.com. You can support the show by supporting our sponsors and becoming a patron at www.patreon.com slash And please subscribe to the show and throw us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We'll be forever grateful. Yep. Special thanks to our beloved patrons, Nate Curtis, Sean O'Donnell, Jared Chamberlain, Maria Ferrante, Robin McCabe, and the newest boys on the block, Comfy Mike and James Harrington. Thanks, guys. See you next Thursday. Show created by Sean and Carrie McCabe. Music by Kyle Ryan. You can find Kyle at his YouTube channel, Music is a Verb. This has been a production of Longboy Media. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939 when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era like Cuba and Vietnam And I'll unpack the conspiracy theories, too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st.